Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. This weekend marks the 77th anniversary of D-Day, when an armada of thousands of vessels set out from Britain across the Channel to the French coast to liberate northern France from the German military. It was codenamed Operation Neptune and is often referred to as D-Day. It was the biggest seaborne invasion in history, which happened on June the 6th, 1944. Over the past few months, I've got to know a visiting US Navy veteran who spent several months in Hong Kong visiting family members here. John Seaworth, who comes from Wisconsin, was a quartermaster on board the US destroyer, the USS Satterley, from July 1943 until a few months after the war ended. And he steered the Satterley on D-Day off Omaha Beach in Normandy. I'll also be talking to his former shipmate and friend K.B. Smith from his home in Arkansas. His job on board was to help direct the destroyer's guns. These are two of three men still known to be with us from the USS Satterley. The job of this destroyer was to provide covering fire for 200 elite US rangers as they climbed up the steep cliffs of Point de Ho to take the beachhead. Thousands of soldiers were killed on this day, which heralded a turning point in the war and the subsequent liberation of France. You'll first hear the voice of John Seawett. We never did receive a direct hit, but there was, I don't know what kind of metal are in some of those artillery shells, but all I can say is there was a, a lot of lead Shrapnel, see, one of, one of the favorite types of ammunition under those circumstances was shrapnel, which were anti-personnel. The shell would explode near something or another, and, and the shrapnel, pieces of metal would fly out in every which direction, and you just better have some shelter. There was never any indication of a physical injury of one of the crew members from some of the flying shrapnel. Although uh, those shells that exploded near the ship didn't go unnoticed, you just had to make sure that when the stuff was flying that you didn't get caught up in it. So would you say that on the USS Satterley you were all very lucky? (laughs) No question about it. And each day, we're talking about 75, 76 years later, we just are so thankful uh, because in addition to the artillery fire, the water underneath us was not that deep, and the entire coastline was heavily mined, and those were explosives that would go off. There was, I forget the name of the destroyer right now that got too close to one and it blew up and uh, it actually uh, split the ship in half. There was a front half and a a rear half and uh, they uh, both halves uh, sunk as a result of being broken in half, went down to the bottom which was not that deep in the channel there. We knew where we were going, but they sealed off. We couldn't write letters. We could write letters, but they wouldn't be mailed till after the invasion. But we were sealed off on the ship. We couldn't go ashore. 
after we found out the information and and so things were pretty tight until the invasion started and then or before the preparation we went over the night before the invasion started with minesweepers ahead of us and we got over there dark on the night before the invasion and we didn't get shot at at that time because the air force was bombing the the coast all night long they just continuously had waves of bombers coming over and i thought boy nobody could survive that uh, the next morning for the invasion but of course they were now your job as quartermaster you'd move up from the through the ranks during the war from third class to first class by taking some exams during that time as well um, but part of your job as well as steering as a helmsman would also be navigation so you knew when you were waiting in southern england with the uss satterley before coming across the channel you yourself had a little bit of an idea you knew that you were going to northern france oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes but what else did you know at that stage well i had to put the information on the charts that we had showing the different areas and once the ship was across the channel and within sight of the french coast there were certain landmarks or you're supposed to identify and uh, to a certain point on the coast as your target that must have been an amazing crossing i mean were there was you uh, in in the destroyer uss satterley but i mean how many vessels are all trooping across the channel at the same time about 5000 it's extraordinary as you were approaching france and the coastline what could you see the actual invasion was scheduled at like about 5:00 a.m. and unfortunately the wind and the tide caused some of the units to be off course all of the landing craft some of them were 20 to 30 minutes away from where they were supposed to get land in the distance to the right was the area that the parachuters had been dropped but the entire area had been bombed unmercifully the night before and as you approached the french coast you you could see the coast because it was a a sea of red from the exploding bombs and fires and you just wonder to yourself how could anything survive all of that the next morning when i stuck my head out i guess about five o'clock and looked out anna marie that view all you could see was ships from horizon to horizon coming in for the invasion and that uh, is probably a little earlier than that because, but what a sight to see and why i couldn't have a camera because i was enlisted so uh, that would have sure been a, a shot to have taken the entire coastline was fortified and uh, was concrete underground and the bomb craters turned out to provide the invading soldiers protection as they would advance from one crater to another and while they were in the crater uh, 
they were out of the line of fire. It made a person feel that they were lucky being out there on the water and instead of on the beach someplace because that was that was terrible. We were at our station the night before. I just don't recall the length of the period because coming across the channel to get into position for our responsibility, which was to provide covering fire for the rangers that were going up a vertical cliff, you lose all track of time. And the rangers had devised a small rocket that they fired, and it had a grappling hook that fired this rocket up, and on the end of the grappling hook was either a, a rope or a rope ladder for the rangers to climb up this cliff. Explain to me, what was your role uh, in terms of the the U.S. rangers going up at Point de Hoc? The role was to keep the Nazi soldiers back in their bunkers, not out in the open where they could operate without harm. My battle station, or what we called uh, general quarters, was at steering the ship, taking my orders from the captain usually under the circumstances. They had some things along the English Channel that they had to avoid because it was heavily mined and the mines were usually set certain depths below the surface of the water so that they were not visible. Did you just have to steer the thing and avoid and just forget all about no, that? No, or? You steered the ship according to the orders that you got from the officer in charge and uh, battle stations, the captain was the man that told you what direction or... So that's Robert Leach? Captain, yes, Robert W. Leach. So what would he say to you? Well, he was talking directly to you. Oh, he would say, uh, come left certain number of degrees, or if it was an emergency, uh, left full rider, steered left in an emergency, and then to straighten out, it was steady as you go. Come to course 270. Now, when you're approaching and coming, you're turning broadside. When we were getting in position to make a firing run, it wasn't straight south, it wasn't straight west, it was in between there. As you went along parallel to the coast, and you wanted to take a course that all four of your main battery guns were able to operate, well, due west would be 270 degrees, but there was a certain slant to the shore, and when we made a run that direction uh, westerly, probably about 240 degrees, you just followed instructions. So you had complete trust of your captain? Yes. In later years, Captain Leach sent me a photo and with a little inscription on it, uh, 
thanks a lot, Seward. It wasn't John Seward, it was just everybody was addressed by the last name. And on it, he said, thanks a lot, Seward, for D-Day. So you're 20 years old at the time of, of D-Day. When I always have an impression of you being there, I mean, you're really at Omaha Beach. You wait for the American or the U.S. Rangers to come in. We were what they would term uh, softening up the competition with our ship to shore fire. And uh, part of our job was to give the rangers covering fire so that they could establish a beachhead. When they would land, come in on the landing craft, they fired that those rockets off, and they would go a hundred and some feet up into the air, and those grappling hooks would be just like a big fish hook. And they would hook into the ground or barbed wire, whatever was up there, and then the rangers would pull those tight, and then they'd go hand over hand up those those ropes uh, to get up to the top. When the invasion came, you know how the weather was on that. That was mm-hmm. very bad and rainy. And those ropes got wet, and they didn't realize that if the ropes were wet, uh, some of the rockets weren't strong enough to propel those hooks all the way up to the top of the cliff and several of them fell short and they weren't able to use them. The 6th of June 1944 at 5 a.m. where are you? We're right off of the coast between Omaha Beach and Utah Beach. Were you frightened? No, I tell you there was there was so much going on and we had a job to do and I was never I don't know I was maybe a little apprehensive about what could happen but to be to say I was really frightened about it uh, there was just too much going on right up above where john was on the uh, bridge there's a what we called a main battery director and we aimed all of the big guns on the ship we got the range to it my job on there was to get the range to a target stereoscopically through a range finder or with a radar that i had behind me and then we would transmit that information down below uh, to a big computer which was below the bridge and then they would compute how high to raise in other words to aim those guns to how high they had to raise them in order for the projectile to reach the target then that information was transmitted back up to our director and we could see the target if it was within sight and usually it was and then we fired the guns from up there. So my job was to get the range and help with the bearing on to spot targets. Where is your tower as such where you're doing the, the range finding? John was inside on the bridge, which was uh, right directly below us. We were at the highest point on the ship, right above John on about the next deck up. So you would be encased in metal, sort of like a... I was enclosed in a main battery director, they called it. Yeah, it was all uh, reinforced steel all the way around us, yeah. And what equipment are you using to find that range? What they called a range finder. And you had to be... One thing you had to have was stereoscopic vision, which is an ability to see, I guess, uh, both sides of your eyes. You know, you can hold your hand out to the right and see your fingers moving. 
I had that ability, and that's that's how I became a rangefinder operator on a destroyer. And then you're looking through binoculars, or you're looking through a... No, 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 there's a device on there. If you look at the ship, a picture of the ship, you'll see something sticking out of that main battery box, or we called it the main battery director, a long tube. There's a tube sticking out on each side of that uh, director, and that's the... It was a big telescope, yeah, actually, but it was, you didn't look through the end, you looked into the middle of it, right. and, but there were lenses out on each end of it. What we would do if they would have a target, for instance, I would get the range to that target, transmit it down, and then they would in turn transmit to the guns how far that, that they would uh, elevate. Our object was to fire and clear the land before they landed or before they climbed up to the top of the cliff. Then once they got up on top of the cliffs, for instance, they might say, here comes a tank, German tank, and we couldn't see it, but they would give us coordinates to it, which was a a means of identification. And we would fire sometimes without seeing the target and destroy a tank that we couldn't even see. The Saturday was assigned specifically to cover the rangers that were going directly onto, they were getting out of their transports or landing crafts, facing enemy fire, and some of them, of course, uh, just never got out of the water. They, They never set foot on the French soil. That's one of the bad things about going to war and and, and seeing the bloodshed, of course, uh, one of the landing crafts were were hit by enemy fire that probably decimated 75% of the people on that landing craft, either by uh, the explosion or by the sinking of the craft. And that's one of the things, uh, none of the destroyers that were providing shore fire were permitted to stop and rescue anybody that they saw floating because that, of course, made them a standing target. And uh, it almost seems inhumane to see somebody struggling in the water. They're not going to last very long because of, of all the explosives going on around them. We had this job to do, and and that job was to cover the rangers that were going up the cliffs. And uh, that was our assignment. And you had to ignore all other acts of humanity. It's not something that uh, most people find easy to do. Where would you be standing when you're steering? Where the, the wheel is. Mm. So are you standing or sitting? Standing, no. There's no chair around there. If you were on there for a regular watch time, a watch during normal times is four hours long, by the time the four hours is up, you're leaning on the wheel quite a little bit. And uh, it's a tiring job. It's, It's just standing there. And what can you see through the window? I mean, is it a large pane of glass, or are you just looking through a porthole in metal? Well, there's uh, portholes all around the pilot house, and uh, 
there's a chart table to the left, and the the captain's chair is over on the right, but he's not normally sitting in the chair. He's moving around the bridge, either out on the port wing or on the starboard wing. Both of them uh, have a stand uh, with a compass on the top, so he can tell on the compass what direction the ship is going and make any adjustments to the port or starboard. But that's when the captain is on the bridge, he's in charge. Under normal hours where you have the regular routine, normally you stand uh, at your post for four hours, and then under normal conditions, you're off for eight hours. But in wartime, during general quarters, every man on board ship has an assignment. For example, uh, the people that operate in the kitchen, all of the kitchens are closed and all the fires are extinguished. And those men quite often are manning a station having to do with firing or manning uh, ammunition passing to the guns from the lower part of the ship. Up there where we were on watch, I mean, we were there all day. And they'd bring coffee up to us when things calmed down a little bit before that. But we opened fire at quarter six, 548. And uh, we quit at quarter seven. And the Rangers landed at 708. They, they were supposed to land at 630. But they got lost coming over to uh, Point de Hawk. The weather was terrible, and the waves were high, and, and they got off course a little bit, so they were about a half hour late getting over to Point de Hope. Before we opened fire, there were two battleships several miles out behind us, and they were firing over the top of us onto the, onto the beach. And if you've ever going uh, driven underneath a railroad trestle, uh, where the road goes underneath the railroad tracks and you hear a train going over the top of you, the deep rumble, and they fired for quite a while, and then they ceased firing, and then we opened up firing, and, and then the Rangers landed. Yeah. And I had a headset on, which had sound in both ears. I was in contact with the computer down below, as well as people inside of our director, because it got real noisy when those guns went off. When we have a look at pictures of D-Day, of course, there are many landing craft. There are men also in tanks that are being landed, um, you know, some tragically too far out. There was a lot of commotion going on and then supreme organisation on that day. And as you say, you weren't served by the weather. You'd have had your earphones on, you'd have had a job to do. Were you aware of what was going on in the sea around you? Yes, there'd be times when we wouldn't have a target. I would stick my head out and watch some of those landing craft coming in. Some of the tanks were put in a landing craft. They built something with a canvas around them to protect them. And on the back of some of the tanks, if you see pictures, there was something called a snorkel, which is a device that would come off of the exhaust and maybe go up eight, eight feet in the air. And that way they could submerge in the tank uh, underwater and the exhaust would be out so they could still go on in. But the trouble was 
some of those tanks got dumped off. They didn't go in far enough to release them, and the whole tank went under. And there were very few tanks that got into the beach because of those problems that they had with the tanks. Now, I understand that the actual guns that were expected to be at the top of Point the Ho weren't there, but there were plenty of other no. targets. Uh, they found them, but they were, had moved further on down somewhere, and they had put telephone poles in place that uh, made it look like the guns were still there. They were they were really worried about them. In fact, that was the Rangers' objective, was to get up there to destroy those. And when they got up there, they couldn't find them for... Not right away. It took a little bit before they discovered them. And they put thermite grenades in the in the barrels and uh, destroyed them so they couldn't use them. So, but that was that was the goal of the Rangers was to get up there and destroy those guns that that couldn't fire on troops down on the beach. Now, when you went in broadside, can you describe to me, so would you go in both directions? Do you have broadside guns on both sides of a destroyer? So you go up the beach, turn, come back again. Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the distance was. Under those circumstances, you lose personal, knowing that safety, you're always concerned about safety, but you're part of a whole plan and you've got your job to do to the best of your ability and once that's done uh, you just hope that you do it right and according to plan also what amazed me when when i've been reading about what you were doing in normandy is just how close you are to the beach yes it depends on see we had to be careful because the tides over there Yes. Uh, we had to go in at a certain time. We could only get in so close when the tide was up. I could feel it, felt like that our bow, which is the front part of the ship, scraped the sandy beach, uh, you know, underneath the, we were so close in that it felt like that we were rubbing the bottom of the ocean right there with the ship. Yes, you're right. John said that you probably touched the ground a couple of times. Uh, okay, during well, that, that as that you were coming in, because mm. I could feel it. Yeah, that was that was uh, quite a feeling. Did you have any concept that you might die doing it? No. Now that's interesting uh, because uh, when we found out about uh, later on when we were on the ship, we had a chaplain on board, and they would hold prayer services on Sunday. And when we found out we were going to be in on the invasion. We were picked because of our uh, accuracy of our gunfire from the ship. So uh, I had some of the friends, and I would talk to them, and we'd have bull, what we call bull sessions when we'd sit around and talk. And some of them would say, boy, uh, I, I'm not coming back. And I said, well, what makes? why do you say that? And they said, well, I don't know. I, I just have that inner feeling. I never had that from day one it never bothered me at all about uh, me being killed I thought if it happens it happens but uh, uh, the excitement of, of going into battle at Normandy was was real adrenaline at the end of the day the USS Satterley then has to return to to southern England in order to refuel and get more ammunition I'm not sure about the refueling but 
I'm guessing that that was a part of the exercise, and of course we had expended practically all of our anti-personnel ammunition, and uh, how many rounds of that, I don't know. It was a busy day. My thanks to John Seawert and K.B. Smith talking there on the events of D-Day, June the 6th, 1944, about their duties aboard the U.S. destroyer, the USS Satterley, at Omaha Beach in Normandy. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>